You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. continuing in a series of messages we've been in for a couple of weeks now. We're just kind of been talking about the big church. And uh, not that we're a big church, but just that the church that Jesus came to launch, that Jesus came to birth, the church to Jesus is a big deal. And so what we're looking at is we're just kind of looking at how did the very first believers in the very first century kind of function there uh, as a church, as a movement that Jesus came to launch. Now again, the very first church in the very first century was kind of launched and they were unified around a singular event in history. And that event was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to talk more about that, obviously, next week. But it really was this event that kind of unified and galvanized those first century believers. Now, within a few months of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, over 5,000 men, women, and children came to embrace the belief that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, sent from the Father to redeem mankind from their sins and to usher us into and restore us back into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so as this message of Jesus' resurrection from the dead kind of uh, grew, more and more people embraced this movement. And because of that, there's kind of this chaos that began to kind of erupt in Jerusalem. And one of the ways that the Jewish leaders kind of decided to kind of deal with all of the chaos that was happening there because of this message was they really kind of went in and they began to persecute uh, those messengers and they were really trying to squelch this movement Um, from those who were kind of going out and sharing that message. Now, one of the chief antagonists there uh, in the early church was a man named Saul. And following his very dramatic conversion to Christianity there in Acts chapter 9, you remember as he's going along the road to Damascus, he becomes Paul, the apostle. And Paul, the apostle, kind of goes on to, uh, you know, plant uh, and, and found many, many little ecclesias, many congregations, gathering of believers. You remember that he goes on to write a majority of the uh, books that make up the New Testament. And, and as Paul is kind of doing this, uh, he kind of decides to kind of do something a little wild, a little crazy. He's going to kind of go against the grain of things uh, for Jewish thought at that time. And Paul decides he's going to take this message, this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and he's going to take it outside the Jewish community, and Paul is going to go and begin to teach and preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to non-Jewish people. He's going to go outside of Palestine, outside of Judea, and he is going to spread this message throughout the known Greek world, you know, Greece and Turkey, and just kind of all along the Mediterranean rim. So for years and years, Paul's kind of traveling throughout this very dangerous part of the world. 
And everywhere Paul goes, the people that he's encountering, Paul is telling them what God has done by sending his son, allowing him to be crucified, dying for our sins, and then resurrecting him from the dead. And Paul is sharing this message with the Gentile world and telling them all that God has done in resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead and how this really is the culmination of all religion. And and Paul's basically saying to them, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God is answering the questions, what do we do with our sin? What do we do to have peace with God, knowing that we have broken his laws. And Paul is saying, God has answered those and many other questions when he sent his son into the world and resurrected him from the dead. So again, Paul is traveling throughout this entire region of the world and he's preaching this message and he's establishing new congregations full of new believers throughout the Mediterranean rim. And while the Apostle Paul is kind of busy doing this, back in Jerusalem, which is kind of the hub of everything that is Christianity at this point, there is a controversy that kind of begins to erupt, and it's growing within the first century church, and it's what we're going to look at today. This controversy kind of erupts about 20 years following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It kind of occurs at the tail end of of Paul's very first missionary journey where, again, he's gone to the Gentiles and he's preaching uh, this new message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the controversy that kind of begins to break out there in the church there in Jerusalem was mainly around these questions. Who should be a part of the church? Who gets in and who doesn't? How good do you have to be? I mean, how good is good enough? How many and exactly what rules do we need to obey? How holy is holy enough? How much of my lifestyle do I have to clean up before I can be accepted or welcomed into the church? I'm breaking in a new mic. What does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus in terms of my lifestyle? And again, this controversy is very understandable if you really understand the first century church. Because back in Jerusalem, you know that that hub of everything that was Christianity up to that point, you had this group of very, very strict Jewish leaders and people who not only had the Ten Commandments, but they also had, in addition to that, over 600 other laws, rules, and regulations that they had been taught to revere and to keep. They believed that Jesus and Christianity was really just an extension, kind of an add-on of Judaism. So these Jews assumed and believed and practiced 
that if you were going to become a follower of Jesus, you first had to become a follower of Moses. Eventually, you had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. This is how the Jewish leaders thought and believed back in the first century. Now, to the Jewish leaders and people at that time, this made perfect sense. After all, wasn't it Jesus who said in Matthew 5, 17, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So it made perfect sense to them that in order to become a Christian, to embrace this message of Jesus, you first had to become a disciple of Moses and embrace the law. But the problem and the controversy erupted Because Paul is going out into the Gentile world and he's traveling to all of these places outside of Jerusalem. They don't know what's happening in Jerusalem. Paul is so far removed from all of that. And Paul is telling these non-Jewish Gentile believers, Jesus died for your sins. And you can have peace with God by grace through faith in Jesus. Then these Jewish leaders would kind of follow Paul. Wherever Paul went, they would be right behind him. And their message to these new Jew Gentile believers was, yeah, what Paul told you, that's true. But it's not all that there is to it. It's just not quite that simple. First, you got to kind of memorize some verses and some rules and some laws and then you got to do some things and then you got to kind of jump through a few hoops and you know you got to clean up your act and then once you've done and satisfied all of that then you can embrace Jesus and you can be a welcome accepted part of the church the conflict and the controversy is really an age-old one that many of you and I kind of know as simply the controversy and the tension between law and grace. Now, one of the issues between law and grace is most churches tend to kind of struggle back and forth between the two. And and this was really kind of the case there in that first century church. And most of us can kind of really understand and we can relate to uh, the angst and the conflict because part of Christianity, it does involve moral standards. I mean, aspects of Christianity appeal to ethical issues. I mean, we find throughout the New Testament commands, there are expectations of how to act, how not to act, what to do, what not to do. And so parts of Christianity really do involve moral imperatives. And yet at the same time, you discover in the New Testament this profoundly beautiful message of grace and forgiveness. And at the same time, we kind of enter into and we begin to feel the controversy and the tension between the two, the do's and the don'ts of Christianity, the message of grace and forgiveness. And see, here's what happens in the midst of this conflict between the tension of law and grace, is most churches react or respond to that by erecting barriers and sending a message 
to the outside community that kind of says, we want you to be a part of our church. We want you to be able to come and to attend services. But here are some things that you need to start doing. And here are some things you need to stop doing in order to come in and to be a part of us. And so again, I say right up front, this is a very natural conflict. This is not unique to us. We're not the only ones that struggle with this. Every church in every generation, starting from the first century forward, have had to deal with the conflict and the tension of law and grace. So again, this is not new to us. We've got the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's the moral imperatives of part of Christianity. Husbands, love your wife. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not be harsh to your children. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. And on and on. Now, what creates the conflict and tension in most churches is when the truth of the gospel kind of runs smack dab into the grace of the gospel. Now, the interesting thing with Jesus, uh, when he went along and he was kind of doing ministry and he's interacting and rubbing shoulders uh, with sinners, the disciple John, when he wrote his gospel, he kind of makes a very interesting and astute observation in John chapter 1, verse 14. And there it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I underline that because I want you to see that. I, I want you to hear that. I want you to just allow that to kind of find a place in your heart. Full of grace and truth. What John is telling us when Jesus, who was God in the flesh, when he interacted, rubbed shoulders with sinners, John recognized here is someone who was full of grace and full of truth. He's saying Jesus was the complete, full, perfect embodiment of grace. He was the full, complete perfect embodiment of truth in one person. Now let's make the distinction here just so that you don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. Jesus was not the perfect like 50-50 balance of grace and truth. See, that's what most churches and most Christians strive for. We're looking for this perfect 50-50 balance of grace and truth. John recognized, and he's saying to us, Jesus completely embodied all of truth and all of grace. And in him there was no conflict, there is no tension between the two. Now why is that so important? Because I believe when the local church gets this, when we understand this and kind of begin to function out of this, it's no longer for us an act of trying to balance the two. It's not a clean yourself up first, 
but neither is it, let's just throw away and get rid of all of the standards, the moral imperatives, the ethical standards. Let's just get rid of all of that so everybody feels good about themselves and no one ever feels convicted. It's not what we're after either. But see, when the local church gets this right, when we understand this, when we begin to flow out of that understanding, when we come together in the name of Jesus, there should be an embodiment, a manifestation of grace and truth in such a way that forgiveness isn't dumbed down, grace isn't cheapened, and truth isn't thrown out the door. That somehow we have come to embrace a way that grace and truth in all of its fullness can coexist in a powerful, transformative way. And I'm going to show you how Jesus did that. The early church in Acts dealt with this, just as I said, every church in every generation from the beginning there in the first century has dealt with this. And I want to look at how did they deal with that because I think there's something we need to learn and be reminded of as a local church. So if you have your Bibles with, that was the introduction. So if you got your Bibles with you this morning, open to chapter 15 in the book of Acts. And as you do that, let me just kind of give you a heads up here. We're going to talk about something this morning that kind of may have a PG-13 element rating to it, but it's in the Bible, so we should be able to talk about it, and we will. I just want to let you know right up front, some of you may be really uncomfortable with the topic. It's okay to be uncomfortable because it is going to kind of amaze you, and it's going to kind of almost make you laugh because you'll kind of see what the early church kind of got so tripped up on so early out of the starting gate. Acts 15, beginning there in verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas, again, they're in the Gentile world, they're in Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach these Gentile believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So like I said, you've got these Jewish religious leaders. They've been brought up on the law of Moses. And they're coming down from Jerusalem, the hub of everything that is Christianity up to this point. They're coming to Antioch. And here's their message to these brand new Gentile believers. Unless you have this surgery, you cannot become a Christian. If you're going to be saved, you're going to become a Christian, you need to first become Jewish. And in order to become Jewish, you're going to have to have a little surgery. But these Jewish leaders, they're really serious about this. I mean, these were non-Jewish Gentile men they were talking to here who were uncircumcised. 
and they're basically delivering to them the message that before you can get saved, before you can become Christians, before you can be fully embraced and accepted by the church, you have got to be circumcised. I mean, these Jewish leaders really believed that before these Gentile believers could be embraced by the church and before they could become a part of the Christian gathering, they had to join the Moses Club before they could join the Jesus Club. Verse 2. Some of you got that. Some of you didn't. It's okay. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. And I might add, so were many men standing behind Paul and Barnabas. They've been going through this region, and Paul and Barnabas have been telling the Gentiles, all that is necessary is for you to confess Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And then here come these Jewish leaders telling them more is really required. Paul's misleading you. We're here to kind of straighten that out. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, the hub of Christianity, accompanied by some of the local Gentile believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem. They stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them much to everyone's joy that Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything that God had done through them. So before they get to kind of really talking about this controversy, this conflict, Paul's kind of giving them an update, a testimony of everything that God was doing among these Gentiles. Verse 5, but then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Now again, to us non-Jewish Christians, you know, oftentimes we really don't know what all that means. So let me just kind of give you 30-second version here. When we hear the word, the law, we're thinking like the Ten Commandments. And those are good, and those are part of what they're talking about there. We like them, and we don't obey them uh, mostly, but we like them. I mean, we want to teach our children to obey them. But that's not what is being talked about here. When we talk about the law of Moses, they're not just talking the Ten Commandments. They're talking about some over 600 other laws in the Old Testament, and they kind of called them fence laws. And that's what they're kind of talking about when they talk about the law of Moses. Not just 10, but 600 additional ones that we've added to the original 10. So here's what they're basically saying. Paul, we want you to get back on that boat. We want you to go back into those cities, and we want you to teach, to train, and to disciple those Believers in how to change their entire lifestyle to adhere to, to adapt to all of these new laws in addition to the Ten 
commandments. So we want you to go back and we want you to teach them these 613 different laws. You need to teach them how to eat different, to dress different, to walk different, to act different, to talk different. They've got to obey the Sabbath. Uh, so they've got 613 laws. Now once they adhere their entire lifestyle to these 613 laws, then have a surgery, then we'll sit down and talk. Now, us non-Jewish Christians, we're like thinking, that's crazy. That is absurd, and that's just nuts. I mean, thank God we would never, ever do that in this day and age. Not so fast. Because if we're not careful, this kind of thinking creeps in on all of us. We think we're so open-minded, we're so accepting, we're so grace-filled, and then you see something that kind of seems different, odd, weird. And you're thinking to yourself, there is no way that kind of a person can be a Christian. Look at them. I mean, I know, I, mean I'm, I look at stuff like this, and I think, I don't even like a paper cut. I mean, let alone tattoos or body piercings. See, if we're not careful, we all settle into our own version of what was happening there in that first century church. Suddenly, something, someone kind of comes along that really doesn't fit into our version, our lifestyle, our understanding, our practice of Christianity, and we just kind of become a little pharisaic. We become a little judgmental. Suddenly, we've kind of got our own standards. And we look at someone like that and we're just kind of really uncomfortable. And that kind of gives you a sense of what was happening there in this first century church. The church hadn't even gotten the wrapping papers off yet. It's brand new and all of a sudden they've got this conflict and this tension erupting. Verse 7 at the meeting after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts. That is so key. Let those four words just kind of sink into your heart. God knows people's hearts. You know what we do? See, I, I don't see your heart. I see your behavior. I don't see your heart. I just see how you dress. I, I don't know your heart. I just see your body piercing and your tattoos. I don't know your heart. I just know the music you listen to. I don't know your heart. I just know the things you watch on television. I don't know your heart. I just think your hair is a little too long. Peter says, God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did 
to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke, with a burden, with a weight that neither we nor our ancestors before us were able to bear. What Peter's doing there is he's basically challenging them, saying, man, just take a look at our own history as Jews. Just take a look at your own personal walk with God. None of us have ever come close to measuring up to the demands of the law. Let's be honest My fellow Jewish believers, every one of us have struggled and every one of us have failed to keep just the Ten Commandments, let alone the other 600. Come on, fellow Jews. We we don't even keep the law all that well. How can we expect them to? How in the world can we expect Gentiles who didn't grow up memorizing or being taught the law of Moses to keep the law of Moses when those of us who have been taught and memorized the laws of Moses couldn't even do it. Verse 11, we believe that all are saved the same way by the undeserved, unmerited grace of the Lord Jesus. Peter is, he's just masterfully making the argument here with two basic points. First, God knows people's hearts. Secondly, he cleansed their hearts through faith. You know basically what Peter is saying? He's saying God purifies the heart before he purifies our lives. Whether we like it or not, whether that's how we would do it if we were God, God purifies our hearts before he purifies our lives. God will purify our hearts before he'll ever get into addressing or dealing with our addictions. God will purify our hearts before he ever gets in to start working with us on our habits. God will purify our hearts first. Even though we may have some insecurities that kind of drive us to do things that we'll become ashamed of or feel guilty about, if God does that for you and for me, then he does that for the people around us as well. The truth is, we are so much more patient and understanding and forgiving of ourselves and what God is trying to do in us than we are when it comes to other people. Peter's saying God works the same way with everyone. And where Peter finishes, James picks up, and he's going to skip down to verse 19 if you're following with me. He said, and so my judgment is, is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them and tell them to abstain from eating foods offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these 
laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So basically their solution to this controversy is we're just going to write a letter and Paul and Barnabas, you're going to take it, you're going to deliver it to these Gentile believers and we're going to tell them two things, not 10, not 613, two things. Number one, try not to offend the Jews. Don't be reckless. Don't be doing this needlessly. And second thing is just abstain from sexual immorality. That's it. End of letter. Come on in. Be saved. Join the church. Go and have coffee and donuts in the praise cafe. I want you to notice how the people responded to their decision and to this letter. It says in verse 31, and there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. I bet they were, especially among the men. So let me just give you kind of one takeaway from this. There's many, many more that you can uh, take from this, but let me just leave you with what I think may be the most important thing we can learn from this as a church and as Christians. The natural drift, the natural gravitational pull towards laws, rules, regulations, policies, and away from grace and forgiveness is the ongoing natural tendency, tension, and conflict of every local church. Again, this isn't unique to us. The natural tendency of every local congregation is to drift Subtly, gradually, without trying to, without recognizing it, we're just going to subtly drift away from grace toward having a lot of rules and laws and regulations and policies and we'll just kind of begin to think and deal with people in terms of categories. This is what happened in the early church there regarding the issue of circumcision. They had a category, Gentile. Here's the policy. You must be circumcised. Here's the category, Gentile. Here's the policy. You must obey all of the laws of Moses. Here's how that transitions into the local church today. Category, women. Policy, you cannot be an elder, you cannot be leaders over men. Here's another category, Christian. Here's the policy, you must not smoke, you must not drink, no tattoos, don't cuss, don't have sex outside of marriage, and if you do any of this, chances are very good, you're not saved. You mean, Pastor, I can smoke cigarettes and still be a Christian? I'm not going to go to hell? No. You'll smell like you've been there, but you're not going to go to hell. <laughs> I was fascinated. There, Janie was telling me about a woman um, in our congregation a couple of weeks ago, and, and she just said, you know, she, she's a believer. And she said, you know, I just feel like the Holy Spirit is kind of really 
leading me to stop smoking. And she said, you know, I, I just kind of feel like, like I, I can't go uh, any further in my journey with God until I do that. Well, that, that wasn't ours. That was Holy Spirit leading. You know what? I can get behind that. I can encourage that. So that's, that's great. Yeah, just be obedient to the Spirit of God in that over your life. That's what we need to be doing. When the church functions along these guidelines, and we're kind of moving more according to laws and rules and regulations and guidelines and less along the lines of, of grace and forgiveness and, and spirit-led you know what? We tend not to have a lot of discussions. Just tell me your category and I'll give you the policy. I'll give you the rules. I'll give you the regulations. I don't even need to know your name. Just tell me what category you fit into and I'll give you the policies. And when you're no longer in that category and you've fulfilled all of our rules, then we can talk about coming into the church. That's how churches kind of drift subtly, gradually away from grace into law, policies, rules, and regulations. And when that happens, you're going to have fewer discussions See, I think when you have fewer policies, rules, laws, regulations, you just tend to have more conversations, which is what Jesus did. Jesus is walking along one day, and he sees a man named Matthew who was Levi at the time, and he is a tax collector. Well, you know, among the other disciples, that is a category, tax collector. We hate them. They're evil. They steal our money. Jesus sees him sitting at the port of customs and he looks at him and says, hey, come, follow me. Jesus, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. Tax collector. I'm going to have a conversation. Come and follow me. But wait, doesn't he have to stop being a tax collector first and then? No, shh, shh. See, that's laws, rules, categories, policies. Jesus is going, look, Matthew, follow me. Where are we going, Jesus? Well, we're going to go, we're going to find Zacchaeus, and we're going to go to his house. And while we're there, the religious leaders are going to bring a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, and everybody around her is going to want to stone her. They're going to ask me what I think, and I'm going to say, hey, first one here among you without sin cast the first stone. And then I'll look at her and say, you committed adultery. Don't do that anymore. By the way, I don't condemn you. But Jesus, she's an adulterer. She hasn't even repented. She hasn't even committed to the fact that she's not going to go out and commit adultery anymore. Shh, shh. It's not about rules and laws and regulations and guidance. I'm going to have a conversation with her. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. But what if she goes back and does it? Shh. 
It's not categories and policies. I want to have a conversation. Churches that are okay with the messiness of no policies and no categories and no laws and no rules and no regulations. See, here's the thing. I hate that stuff in our church. I don't like it. Because you know all of the policies and the laws and the rules and the regulations and the guidelines you all come up with, guess who has to enforce all of that? I do. And I don't like that. Because what ends up happening is it's a policy to you. But I have to take that policy and begin to apply that to people. And there just are variables there that no policy will ever capture. Sometimes it's just I need to sit down and have a conversation with them. And be spirit-led in that with them. And again, trying to be the embodiment of that grace and that truth of being able to say to them, go and don't do this anymore, but I don't condemn you. And yes, you can come and be a part of the church. Come and struggle with us as we're learning to walk by the Spirit. Come and join us as we follow Him. You see, churches that are okay with that are more likely to understand and experience and embody this amazing, wonderful merger of uncompromised truth and full-on, head-on grace. Policies, categories, rules, and, and regulations are easy because you don't have to deal with anyone. I don't need to know your name. You send them a form. You send them the guideline. You send them the policy. And when you adhere to all of this, then you're welcome. Conversations and grace, yeah, it's messy. But it's wonderful. It's powerful. It's what Jesus did. And that's what I believe the local church is supposed to do as well. When it comes down to that, that choice between law and grace, we have got to err on the side of grace. I don't always do that. When there's conflict and tension between the moral imperatives, when we lay out and say, here's what the scriptures teach, here's what the Bible says on that particular topic, we absolutely love the word of God. And we want to strive, and we need to strive to be faithful and obedient to what the word is telling us to do. But when there comes a person who, who maybe is not yet there, maybe they're not as far along in their maturity as a Christian as you are. The Bible says we just need to be gentle toward those who are younger believers. I mean, if you've been a Christian for 20 years versus someone who's been a Christian for 20 minutes, you better be so much further down the road in your maturity or you need to kind of check, do you really have faith? Of course you're going to be so much further down the road. You've been at this a lot longer. We need to be gentle with those who are new to this. And if we're going to make a mistake, if we're going to go too far on one side, let us err on the side of grace. Aren't you glad God erred on the side of grace in your situation, in your messiness? 
Aren't you glad he didn't say, okay, you know, I'm going to love and accept you, but here are 613 things you got to do first. Call me when you get them all situated. If we can be intentional and focused about trying to be a church where this wonderful, beautiful, amazing, sometimes messy thing of truth and grace come together, not in a balanced way, but again, as we strive to be the full embodiment of grace and the full embodiment of truth in a powerful, dynamic, transformative way, God will have a plan for you. He will have a purpose for this church in this community. And God will use you and he will use me to do something unique and remarkable in our generation as we continue to be a part of something big called the church. This morning, we're going to end by just inviting you to participate in something extremely relational. When Jesus met with his disciples for the final time, and he took that bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He took the cup and he lifted it up. He gave thanks to God. He said, drink from this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you do this, he said, do it in remembrance of me. And he's inviting us into a relationship that he forged for you and I through his broken body and his shed blood. He has opened the way for you and I to enter back into a relationship with our heavenly father. This is not about rules or religion or guidelines. This is about relationship. And he said, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of the relationship that I have come to establish for you with your heavenly father. See, I know a lot of people that do this. They'll take the bread, they'll take the juice, and they just do it out of religion. It was never about religion. It was always about relationships. It's about just coming to God and saying, here I am, imperfect, but I love you. I have a desire to know you more deeply. I have a desire to be led of your spirit. I have a desire to be obedient to you. So God, I just offer myself up. I'm just presenting myself before you again, before your amazing grace and recognizing this is about relationship, not religion. And so God, here I am. And I thank you for what you have done for me through the breaking of your body, the shedding of your blood to bring me into that relationship with my heavenly father. And I'm ready to take the next step. I'm ready to be obedient and spirit led. That's what this is about. So I want to just invite you just to take that next step in your walk and in your relationship with God knowing that you don't have to be perfect to partake of this. You just need to be a believer. Because see, if you're not a believer, chances are you're just going to take this out of religion, out of fulfilling some kind of a law or a rule or a ritual. And that's not what it's about. It's about relationship. So just invite you as you're ready this morning. We're just going to kind of stand and worship together. As you're ready and feel led, you can kind of just come up, take a piece of bread, just dip that in the juice. And again, just to be reminded and to remember the relationship that you've been invited into again 
with your heavenly Father through what Jesus has done for you. Amen? Let's stand. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.